0: Well, good evening, everyone. Uh, Thank you so much for joining us here at the Catholic Information Center. Um, My name is Rosemary Eldridge, and I'm the director of communications and programs here at the CIC. And on behalf of the CIC and our director, Father Charles Trulos, it is my pleasure to welcome everyone who is with us tonight, both in person and online, for tonight's event, Mind, Heart, and Soul, Intellectuals and the Path to Rome, with Robert P. George and RJ Snell. Our first speaker tonight is Robert P. George, also known as Professor George. He holds Princeton's celebrated McCormick chair in jurisprudence, and is the director of the James Madison Program in American Ideals and Institutions. He has served as chairman of the United States Commission on International Religious Freedom, and before that, on the President's Council on Bioethics, and as a presidential appointee to the United States Commission on Civil Rights. He has authored numerous books, including in defense of natural law, (coughs) making men moral, what is marriage, man and woman, a defense, among others? So thank you so much for joining us tonight, Professor George, and for your vigilant efforts to evangelize the culture through your profession. Our second speaker tonight is R.J. Snell. Mr. Snell directs the Center on the University and Intellectual Life at the Witherspoon Institute in Princeton, New Jersey. Prior to this appointment, he was for many years Professor of Philosophy, and director of the philosophy program at Eastern University and the Templeton Honors College, where he founded and directed the Gore Institute for Civic Virtue and the Common Good. A convert to Catholicism, he grew up Baptist and received his early education at the schools of Prairie Bible Institute and Liberty University. His first encounter with Rome occurred while pursuing an MA in philosophy at Boston College, where he took several courses with Peter Kreft. He earned a PhD in philosophy at Marquette University. He is the author of several books, as well as articles, chapters, essays, and a variety of scholarly and popular venues. So thank you so much for joining us tonight, Mr. Snell. I myself grew up Baptist and found Catholicism in college. And as we can see from our two speakers tonight, non-Catholics, you better watch out for Catholic professors. You might just find the way and the truth. And with that, please join me in welcoming both our speakers to the stage.
1: Well, thank you so much, uh, Rosemary, and thanks to everyone for uh, uh, coming out this evening. I I, I must say I got a little bit of a thrill with that little bit of uh, Catholic triumphalism at the end there from (laughs) Rosemary. Uh, Those of you who are not Catholic, uh, in view of the situation in the church today, you might give us a pass on that (laughs) (laughs) triumphalism. Uh, We need a little dose of that uh, these days. Uh, I'm very honored to be appearing together with my dear friend and uh, colleague, uh, R.J. Snell. Uh, R.J. did most of the work uh, on the book, and I'm very, very grateful to him for, uh, for doing it. Uh, and this is mainly going to be uh, an interview that I conduct with, uh, with R.J. R.J. actually is a convert, uh, although, as we point out in the book, all Christians, uh, from a Catholic point of view anyway, all Christians are uh, converts. You're not born a Christian. Uh, some of us converted at uh, one week old, Uh, uh, some many years uh, after birth, but we're all converts. But there's another sense in which uh, we can distinguish cradle Catholics like myself, people who were brought up in the faith, from those who converted like um, RJ. I have to confess that I was motivated in this project, and my general fascination with converts in part reflects what might be called convert envy on my part. Uh, why am I envious of converts? Part of it might be an intellectual conceit, wondering uh, would I have, excuse this next little bit of Catholic triumphalism, been smart enough to have converted uh, had, uh, had I not been uh, brought up as a, as a Catholic. Uh, but beyond that and more importantly than that, it's just that in my own life and in my own experience, best Catholics are converts. So many of the best Catholics are converts. Uh, Catholics who know their faith best are very often converts. Those who want to know more about their faith are so often converts. Uh, They had to think their way, in part think, pray, reflect, be prayed for uh, into the faith in a way that those of us who are cradle Catholics well, it was different for, for us. We take our faith, we cradle Catholics tend to take our faith for granted. But of course, by definition, Catholic converts haven't uh, done that. And and as Catholics, they tend not to uh, take their faith for granted. So that's a general fascination that I have had for many, many years uh, with, with converts. I'd also point out that um, many of the great thinkers uh, intellectuals that I've admired. And this book is about intellectual converts. Many of the great thinkers that I've admired, many of whom have been profound influences on me, either through their writings, uh, people like Augustine and Newman, uh, or in person. People like Professor Arcus, who's here, my doctoral supervisor in Oxford, uh, John Finnis. Uh, others whom I've known and have been my uh, teachers in a less formal way, people like Elizabeth Anscombe and Michael Dummett, Alastair MacIntyre, uh, so many of the great thinkers that have influenced me have been Catholic converts. Um, I find that absolutely fascinating. In my own narrow area, my own field of uh, philosophy, uh, th- when I think, of, especially in the Anglo-American or so-called analytic tradition of philosophy, when I think of who the great philosophers are, those I've most uh, admired in the 20th century, Uh, they've almost all been laymen a great many of them have been Catholics and of those who have been Catholics the vast majority have been convert Catholics. I've mentioned some already Arcus, Finnis, Anscombe, but think of all the others. I mentioned Dummett I think, Geech, McIntyre, Fox Genovese, Elstein, Newhouse. I mean the list just goes on and on and on and we go back a little further, there are people like Maritan, like Marcel, Gabrielle Marcel, uh, Edith Stein, and on and on. Uh, so I love to hear their stories. And my thought, and what motivated the book really, was the thought that other people might like to hear their stories as well. Now, of course, people know the stories of Newman. Uh, they know the story – some people know the story of someone like Maritain. Uh, Many know the story of some of the most influential converts in the second half of the 20th century. But what about the newer ones? What about those who have come to the faith in the last 10 years? It was really their stories that R.J. and I uh, wanted to to bring to the attention of readers who might be interested, Catholic and non-Catholic alike. And sure enough, uh, there is no dearth of outstanding intellectuals who have come to the faith in the past decade or decade and a half uh, whose stories deserve to be told. Despite the fact that, let's face it, for the last decade and a half or more, there's been a lot about the Catholic Church that has not been especially appealing and attractive. And yet, so many penetrating thinkers, you know, people who are hungry for the truth and seeking it and people who are powerful thinkers have somehow found their way past the scandals and the nonsense and the you know the often less than inspiring liturgies and bad hymns and heretical sermons and everything else that Catholics have been subjected to for I won't say anything about the bishops in the last uh decade and a half or more and yet somehow uh people like Professor Arcus, like Chad Pecknold, who, uh, who is here, like my friend Adrian Vermule at the Harvard uh, Law School. Uh, so many others have found their way uh, to, the, to the faith. So that's uh, what I wanted to say by way of opening. Let me uh, invite RJ to uh, have a word, and then we can chat a bit.
2: Well, that's interesting, because my experience of the liturgy and the, and the hymn singing has been really quite wonderful. It's, it's been nothing but inspiring. Uh, I remember calling some friends and saying, we've decided to enter the church after many, many years. And almost invariably, my Catholic friends would make some sort of comment like, come on in, the water is terrible. (laughs) It was was almost the complete, it was the last chance the Catholics had to sort of keep me away. Which I often find quite remarkable. At least in my own experience, so many converts... Take a long time, or at least I did. It was about 15 years from my first encounter with Peter Kraft to the phone call to Peter who said, Oh, I already thought you were Catholic. I hadn't realized. <laughs> it was about 15 years of looking, and then that wonderful expression of coming home, being at home, welcome home. Uh, it's an expression which is often used by by Catholics. Come on, come on, coming home, welcome home. And it really is, especially for someone who, who grew up Christian, a coming home to a familiar place you hadn't known that you had left. Uh, and the experience of converts oftentimes is they're very excited with the furnishings. Uh, this is an example we use in the preface. Uh, your own home, you don't notice what is there anymore. That sofa has always been there. That bit of artwork has been there so long that you forget that it's there. And only a visitor visitor to your home points out and says oh what a a lovely vase you have and you've forgotten that your grandmother bequeathed that vase to you and it really is quite quite beautiful upon second glance Uh, converts coming home it's it's very much like that there's a kind of running around the room excitement of have you seen what you have have you seen this have you heard this have you read this Uh, and it's a, a great delight to in a book like this be able to speak with other converts and see similarities figures or thinkers or songs or mystics that were also important to them. Uh, And then individuals that you didn't know about who played great influence in others coming home, because the home is very large and the home is is very well furnished. There's many many rooms in this mansion, and it's an expansive and beautiful and welcoming one. And being able to to learn these stories and, and share them has been a real treat and an honor for me. Yeah. you know, in the
1: uh, in the I grew up as a Catholic in a very non-Catholic, very evangelical <clears throat> culture. I grew up in uh, in West Virginia, um, and I can remember a time when uh, some of our non-Catholic friends would say, "Well, yes, uh, people convert to Catholicism, but um, you know, they're attracted by the magnificent churches." Well, we fixed that by building all those ugly churches in the 60s. Um, By the mysterious, awesome liturgy. Well, we took care of that. Uh, By the preaching of the great people like Fulton J. Sheen. Well, we don't do that. (laughs) It's not that stuff. When uh, uh, our late friend, uh, Hadley's friend and mine, uh, Elizabeth Fox Genovese, was... uh, Received it, well, when she decided she would become a Catholic, and she came from a completely atheistical uh, background. She, she had no religion whatsoever, except to the extent that Marxism is a religion. But when she... Um, and, and, and she caught me by surprise. I mean, we were, we were friends, but I didn't know that she was moving in the direction of the Catholic faith at all. Hadley can help me out here. I want to say probably around 2004 or something like that. In any event, I can remember where I was in my house when I got the phone call from Betsy And uh, she said, Robbie, I thought that you might want to know, and I wanted you to be among the first to know, that I'm going to be received into the Catholic Church. And I was a bit stunned by that, delighted, of course, but stunned. And and then I thought, "Uh uh-oh. I remembered that Betsy's father had been a teacher of, I think, medieval French history. And she had a kind of interest in uh, the Middle Ages and an admiration for the, the, the cathedrals and the poetry and all that. And so I wondered could she be one of these people who thinks, whose image of the Catholic Church is of the great triumphal church with the great cathedrals and all that stuff. Um, and so I was moved to say, well Betsy, I'm, I'm so glad to hear that, but gosh, you know, you need to be prepared because, you know, we've got a lot of problems in the church and, you know, a lot of weak bishops and heretical priests, theologians, and all this. And, and she listened to me for a while, and then she finally said, but Robbie, it's the church. It's the church. And I knew right then... She's coming in for exactly the right reason, and in fact, and really, the only good reason for coming in—it's not the pretty architecture, or the magnificent liturgy, or the great hymns, or the great thinkers—or you know—it's it, because it's the church that Jesus founded, and it's the mystical body of Christ. She had the whole thing; she was right on. And at, when someone says that, then okay, there—you know—that they're—they're not gonna cut and run the next time it's announced that, you know, there was a cardinal seducing the altar boys or seminarians or, or, or what have you.
2: It's interesting. The, uh, the, sometimes people will complain, and Robbie's made allusion to it, of the shabbiness of the current condition of the church. I'd grown up in a context in which I was told quite frequently that we did not believe in working out our salvation the way those Catholics did. Although I've yet to meet a Catholic who appears to be working out their salvation (laughs) uh, the way we were. But we had a sense, or at least the community that I grew up in, had a sense that we were not shabby. The church was comprised essentially of the wheat, not the chaff. And there was a long ecclesiology behind that, that the wheat were in the church, the chaff were outside. And the Catholics following Augustine were were quite at ease with the chaff being at home with the wheat. And so you had, uh, you know, Evelyn Waugh-type Catholics or Graham Greene Catholics, the whiskey priest kind of Catholic, this sort of shabbiness and acceptance of shabbiness. And I often, I always found that to be a quite endearing trait uh, about serious Catholics, that while I would meet Catholics who seemed far more holy than I was, far more committed in their spiritual disciplines and, and perfections than I were, they themselves seem to think of them, think of their own selves as the greatest of sinners, which seemed to me to be precisely the the right move of someone who understood that they were a disciple of Christ, and that they were to be holy, even as the Father in heaven is holy. As,
3: as Mike Novak's comment. It's a church of the sinners, by the sinners, <laughs> for, for the, the sinners. sinners. <laughs> and so you know
2: that that kind of s- disdain that some will have, you know, that here comes everybody when you talk about okay. Catholicism or. Christopher Dawson, the, the great Christopher Dawson, when, when he converted, he'd been a high church Anglican. His mother said to him, Oh, Christopher, now you go to church with the help.
0: Yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah. I had similar responses from, from those that I knew of. Well, now you'll be going to church with those people, you know, people who smoke, drink, and chew and date girls who do. <laughs> to, to me, there was an earthy, non judgmental holiness about Catholic people who knew themselves to be sinners, who knew themselves to be on the path of forgiveness and salvation. And I always found that to be a remarkable, welcoming experience, uh, that these were people who were uh, sinners. And so I had a place here.
1: Before his own conversion uh, to Catholicism, the late uh, Bob Bork uh, was at a dinner. And those of you who know Bob know what a how much he enjoyed having a good time at a dinner, a couple of martinis. And the conversation was flowing, and the, the stories were being told. Uh, and it, as many of you may know, Bob uh, was married to Mary Ellen. He was a very devout, uh, he is a very devout uh, Catholic. Uh, so they were there at the dinner, and Mary Ellen was there with him. And, and Bob was at one point telling the table, a very loud voice, you know, when I was growing up as a Protestant, all I was ever told about the Catholic Church that it was, was that it was retrograde and benighted and backward and behind the times, at which point my friend Rob Royal leans in and says, well, Bob, I guess Mary Ellen has straightened you out about all that. And Bob replied, no, 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 don't get me wrong. I just wish it were all true.
3: <laughs> <laughs>
1: my friend uh, Sandy Levinson, who is a secularist, a uh, constitutional scholar, but one, like many seculars, with a great admiration for the Catholic Church, calls it a grand anachronism. He can't, he can't buy it. He can't buy that it's, uh, it's actually true, but he sees a kind of grandeur uh, to it. Now, that, that's something that, that... He's seeing something there that does count, despite all the shabbiness, yeah. that grandeur. Even a, even, a sec, even a person who's not buying it, even a person who's not persuaded, sees that. And what he's seeing is what I think converts themselves do see, those who do buy it, see that, but they see its significance, and they see more than, uh, than, than that.
2: The sheer facticity of the church. I, I remember when I was first studying with Peter Craft at Boston College. This was my first introduction to Catholicism. I had known there were Catholics, but we didn't, we didn't associate with them. I, I grew up in a very small town. My mother tells stories of when she was in high school taking food to the community events when it was the community event, but then having to take the food home before the dance began because dancing was wrong and the Catholics would be dancing. (laughs) So the food had to come home because you you, you couldn't be either formally or materially uh, complicit with dancing and Catholicism. (laughs) I remember talking to to Peter and and, and sort of asking all of these questions and why can't the church update itself and why can't the church change? And his response to me was, the church really doesn't care if you convert or not. The church is a sheer fact waiting for you to arrive at where the church has always been. Uh, I think there's something about the, I wish, like like Bork, I wish this were more the case, <laughs> the intractability of the church on, on certain questions and certain issues. Now, a line that, that Hadley uses in, in the book is his recognition, I think he had, he had known it for a long time maybe, but his recognition that the church was the only remaining truth-telling institution. No one else told the truth, but the church did. Uh, earlier on in, in our marriage, Amy and I had uh, had come to the conclusion that, that contraception was, was illicit, that artificial contraception w- w- was illicit. Uh, and yet our own ecclesial communities not only accepted it, it was Uh, either a matter of indifference or moral responsibility to use. Uh, And I remember that being something of a burr under the saddle of my mind, that if the church was wrong about so much and intractable about all these things that it it ought to change, why it remained the only truth-telling institution that I was familiar with uh, about contraception. And that nagged and nagged and nagged, because if if it was wrong about everything and it was intractably right about this, I had had to take a closer look. Uh, So I wish the church was slightly more intractable at times in its simple statement of what is the case, right? Because the simple statement of what is the case is a, a bearing witness or a giving testimony, but it's also an invitation and a welcome of we're here for you when you would like to come home. And the door is always open the way home always is. Sometimes home is a little messy, but it's always home. Um, but at least my grandmother, you were welcome to come in, but you were welcome to come into her home. It was the way she had decorated it and so on. And I, I always found that to be something beautiful of the church, that it, she was not running desperately to, my, to bend to my whims and wishes. Yeah.
1: I think this is a... Theme through the book, through the stories that the uh, intellectual converts tell, and it may be something distinctive to intellectual converts. I'm not sure to those more intellectually oriented, although I'm sure the mind plays a role in the in in, in all conversion uh, accounts. But the thing I'm focusing on here is the theme of the church was telling the truth about something, or I realized the church was telling the truth about something that everyone else was keen to deny. Not just denied, but was eager to deny. It was important that they denied it. Important to them that they denied it. But here was the Catholic Church standing fast telling this truth. Now, in in the case of different converts, it's a different particular truth. Often it's a moral truth. But it's that the Church was telling that truth. But another constant, I think, among the intellectual converts is what brings them over the line what brings them in, finally, is not that the church is telling the truth about this and that, even while other institutions and other peoples are, people are fleeing from it. It's the insight that it's not just that the church is right about this and right about this and right about that. It's that the church is a truth-telling mm-hmm. institution, that it's the business of the church. It's the charism of the church to tell the truth. After all, a lot of other institutions might be telling the truth about this, that, and mm-hmm. the... And the other thing. But the, the, the decision in enter Catholic church is made on the basis that you know what? The church is a reliable teacher of truth. If, if she says that something is of the faith, you can take it to the bank. You can count on
2: that. I, I remember a, affirming um, that I believed all that the Catholic church taught when one enters the church. And, and I remember thinking, I and mean, I studied with the Jesuits, but I had no mental reservation at all, <laughs> thinking Nonetheless I wish she did not teach X and Y. So I hadn't sort of done an inductive work of checking every box. Yes the church is right about this I concur the church is right about this I concur. I had concurred with the nature of the church and thus granted that it w- she was not only within her rights but she was the authority to teach even X and Y which I wish she had not she did not teach at the time but she must be right and I must assent and consent to what she taught because she was the teller of truth. Uh, and you know, the good news of that, of course, is when one is docile, one begins to understand. And now those doctrines X and Y, both Marian doctrines, are among some of my most cherished and, and beloved doctrines.
1: Yeah. The, the, your, your own uh, story about coming to believe the church was right about contraception or coming to a view about contraception mm-hmm which was the church, happened to be the church's view, and then looking around to see who was telling the truth, is an interesting one. Uh, this is a bit of theological speculation of my own, but I wonder how Paul VI managed to reaffirm that teaching uh, in the context in which Humanae Vitae was delivered. I think that... <laughs> Left on his own, if he was just Giovanni Battista Montini and not Pontiff, Supreme Pastor of the Universal Church, it's hard for me to believe he would have upheld the, the traditional teaching. Everything was going against it. Absolutely everything was going against it. You know, the Protestant churches had began begun abandoning it in the late 1920s, early 19. 19- 30s by the 60s all pretty all the major protestant denominations had abandoned the teaching the teaching really was looked at by the great and the good the the cultural and intellectual and economic elite as backward and benighted all the stuff that bob bork said that his protestant uh, family members accused the catholic church of uh there was the whole insanity about the population explosion and we were going to run out of food by 1980 and uh all all that which was right i mean that the cultural and intellectual everybody, belief about that one—the yeah. like, people who are telling you about transgenderism now—they were buying this whole population explosion uh, myth in the same way that they bought into eugenics a generation uh, earlier. These are the great truth tellers, by the way. Um, everything was going against it, and obviously, you know, as you all know, I'm sure the, the, the Pope's own commission, the uh, birth control commission, <laughs> recommended a revision of the of the uh, of the teaching to permit contraception under some circumstances. Uh, priests were already beginning in their pastoral practice and confessional uh, practice to tell people tell couples married couples that contraception was okay the church's teaching was likely to change on this uh you know no, no need to treat this as a confessable sin blah 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 uh gosh how did the catholic church manage not to yield under those circumstances how did pope paul the managed to stand fast. Everything was gone against it. The price of doing it would be extremely heavy. He had to know about the rebellion that would come. Maybe he didn't realize it would come quite as quickly, uh, that Charles Curran would ignite it before he read the encyclical. Uh, but he had to know that he was going to get one heck of a rebellion. He, he had to know that it wouldn't be just the theologians, but bishops and probably entire bishops' conferences, which you, mm-hmm. you did get. He had to know that a lot of negative consequences for the church, its reputation, its standing, its financial circumstances would all come uh, in the wake of what he was about to do and what he did. But he did it nonetheless. Now, there's my theological speculation. I mean, does a merely human institution do that? Can, can, could, could, Pope Paul, uh, Pope, could Giovanni Battisti Montini have done that apart from the charism he enjoyed as pontiff? Uh, it seems doubtful to me.
2: There's something beautiful about the text, too, in its, in its brevity. I, I was talking to some students the other day. Where they, they, they believe the document, but they're somewhat complaining about the lack of explanation in the encyclical, which I take to be one of its great merits. <laughs> it simply said, well, this is the teaching of the church. Here's what's likely to happen, uh, most of which turned out to be yeah. the case. It was r- right about most of those things, at least in my judgment. Uh, but it didn't do... Um, enormous intellectual legwork of explaining why the doctrine was right. It articulated that the doctrine was as follows, which gives, you see this a lot in Catholicism um, an opening or space for reflection this is one of the things I I think is quite remarkable about, about the Catholic genius, the various charisms and orders and spiritualities that within the space of orthodoxy, within the space of dogma There are so many ways to determine how the dogma is true. It it, it is true. How is it true? How is it to be explained and lived? Uh, And that encyclical, I think, has that virtue.
1: It does indeed. It did one bit of intellectual work, though, that I thought was very important. I don't know if you agree with this, R.J., uh, and it did something that really, very much needed to be done, especially once the anvullent birth control pill. I don't want to distract our discussion off into contraception yet again, but the something that it did was actually for the first time, uh, at least for the modern period, in a way that made sense, define contraception. Mm, yeah. There was a I mean what one of the things the pill, the introduction of the pill, uh, created was um, doubt, uh, confusion, uncertainty about what the church is teaching, on contraception was a teaching against. Uh, there was even the initial question of whether the pill it, it was, was a contraceptive within the meaning of the traditional prohibition, which was what the Birth Control Commission was initially charged to study and, and make a, a recommended judgment uh, on. I think the commission rightly drew the conclusion that we do get in, in, in the encyclical that the pill is a, a, a contraceptive, that anything you do before, during, or after uh, marital relations to render the act sterile is, uh, is contraception within the meaning of that term for the, for the prohibition. It got it right, although the, then the Birth Control Commission said, well, it is a contraceptive, but what we should do is change the teaching on uh, contraception because it's you know, not infallibly proposed and we can change it and it, it would ease a lot of burdens on married couples and so forth and so on. But back to the back to the book, R.J. Tell uh, tell us about some of the um, convert stories that you found particularly engaging.
2: Well, there, there's so many. Hadley, of course, is here. His story is, is fascinating and, as always, charmingly told. And Hadley was received in this very Ro- in this very room. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and Hadley's section has, I think, what I found to be a, a, a quite moving uh, tribute to his many friends who were who were here yeah. and joined him in that uh chad's story is is very similar to my own uh he turned to august and i turned to aquinas but you know he gets most of it right um he got this, he got the central part right anyway chad's story is very similar to my own so i resonate with it quite quite closely uh, the story of uh, ulf ulf ekman is a very interesting one he was a, a swedish megachurch pastor Which, if you know much about Sweden, um, the condition of faith in Sweden is is perhaps not particularly vibrant and robust. Um, But Ulf and and his wife and his ministry were extraordinarily successful, not not just in terms of fidelity, but even just in terms of numbers. They were planting churches, they were planting colleges, they were planting Bible studies all throughout Scandinavia and through Eastern Europe, Uh, He was a a major and significant figure in uh, in, in the charismatic or Pentecostal movement, Uh, and he had to essentially leave behind his ordered ministry and much of his influence because he had, in in a very charismatic way, in a way that I don't particularly understand or resonate with, never having been charismatic, he had a word from the Lord uh, that the church was the church and the Marian doctrines were true. Uh, And so he... Left what he had to, to follow what he understood to be the truth uh, which was, came at some personal cost and, and even some confusion am, among those who were dependent upon him. That's, I think that's a remarkable story for someone yeah. to, to give up so much and to do so in my conversations with him with uh, no sense of loss. And He told me in conversation well now I'm just an, I'm an ordinary Catholic and that's a wonderful thing to yeah. be. I found that story to be to be very touching. Many of the um, many of the stories are
1: told in the uh, by a, uh, use of an interview format. Uh, so one person, often a convert, interviews the convert. Um, in in my case, I uh, interviewed Bishop Conley uh, from uh, Lincoln, Nebraska, and uh, his story was interesting because he came to the faith as a result of being a student at the University of Kansas in what was, alas, does no longer exist, what was a great Western civ program, Western civilization program. So it was in in encountering the great thinkers, really from Plato, from the pre-Christian period, from Plato forward, that uh, put him on the road uh, to, To conversion, and and it's interesting that in his account, which I hope you will read in the book, uh, he saw the pre-Christian pagan philosophers like Plato and Aristotle pointing the way, you know, from their own, in a certain sense, ignorance. Nevertheless, pointing Mm -hmm. in the direction that would lead them to Jesus. That's just really an extraordinary thing. But, uh, and, and Chad's here, so he can check me on this. I think this is something that you find even in some of the church fathers who had read Plato, right. for example. This sense that Plato was pointing in a certain direction.
2: Everything but the Logos, uh, Augustine <laughs> yeah. says, which is everything. But, yeah. 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 Uh,
1: another thing I find interesting, and Hadley could speak to this, is with Jewish converts. Well, I'm about to problematize the notion of Jewish converts. Many Jews who become Catholics, who are not Jewish Catholics from the beginning, but uh, Jews who become Catholics do not experience themselves or understand themselves as converts in the way that Protestants, for example, who become Catholics understand themselves as converts. It's more a sense that, I'm, I'm I'm just completing what I already am it's not a fundamental change in any way I'm on a path and uh, maybe maybe now I'm actually seeing who I have been following all along I was following him I just didn't realize it was him. it strikes me as like the disciples on the road to Emmaus you know they're walking along with Jesus they don't know who he is don't recognize who he is but you know they're 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 with him they're they're on board you know and and then eventually they see well it's 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 who he is but that's an a, a, a experience I noticed that's, yeah. that's different and, and distinctive uh, to uh, people who have some significant Jewish identity, yeah. whether or not they were devoutly religious, but at least a strong kind of Jewish
2: identity who then uh, become Catholic. Yeah, it's interesting. So many of my friends who were Protestants who converted speak of themselves as converting, And I've had so many lifelong cradle Catholics tell me something very much non-triumphalistic. No, 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 you're not converting. You had faith. Now you have the fullness of faith. You need to be grateful for the faith that you had. I I have found that to be a wonderful corrective or counsel uh, to be grateful from Catholics reminding me that I, in fact, received faith at my mother's knee. Uh, and from good and serious Protestant pastors and youth group leaders and so on. So I've had a good many, uh, and and I've had other Protestants tell me this as well, I've had a good many Catholics um, counsel gratitude and not to overstress the convert language, which I think is very magnanimous.
1: One of the uh, Um. interesting features of the book is that uh, it has two converts who are married to each other interview each other uh, my former th- student, Matthew Schmitz, interviews his wife, Julia Yost, and then Julia Yost uh, interviews Matthew, uh, Matthew Schmitz. Uh, and that's uh, uh, one of the highlights of the book uh, for me. Another is Karin uh, Oberg, a very distinguished uh, astrophysicist uh, at Harvard uh, who has a, a, a chapter. And that's another interesting thing. I, uh, I noticed that there's something distinctive about intellectual converts who are coming from science, mm rather than from history, philosophy, literature where the Western Civ aspect of things is so, ordinarily so crucial as it was in Bishop Conley's case. Uh, With someone like Karen Oberg, it's the intelligibility of the orders that she explores as a scientist Mm -hmm. and their majesty and their their grandeur and their complexity uh, that is playing the role that the grandeur of Western civilization would play for somebody like uh, uh, Bishop Conley. Uh, I should also mention that while um, most of the converts in the book who have uh, any political profile, and not all do, uh, tend to be on the conservative side, uh, one is on the liberal side. That's um, uh, Kirsten Powers, uh, who has a fascinating uh, conversion uh, story from secularism uh, to evangelicalism, which she embraced with uh, considerable uh, enthusiasm, although in a certain sense at the same time against her will. Right. She didn't want it to be true. Uh, she didn't want Christianity to be, to be true. She was happy with the secularist uh, view of things, but she came persuaded nevertheless that it was true. Okay. But she didn't get turned off to evangelicalism. It wasn't that she was an evangelical. She was, she was uh, I think, received, uh, uh, baptized as a Christian in tim keller's church in new york if i remember correctly um it wasn't that she became disgusted or turned off to evangelicalism it's that her evangelical faith seemed to point again the trajectory that she was on took her beyond evangelicalism and into uh catholicism so her story again is a is fascinating and she's interviewed by the wonderful uh, Catherine jean lopez so the book It's it's great to be able to bring the interviewers and the interview uh, subjects together. Part, I think, of the charm of the book and what makes it different from most conversion books is the the interview format and not just using a single interviewer, having lots of different uh, people conduct the interviews. Well, we should probably uh, open the floor. And uh, also, since Chad and Hadley are here, I don't know if any of our other – I know Kirsten couldn't be here because she's doing CNN tonight, but uh, if any of the other interview subjects happen to be here – let us know because we'd like to hear from you as well. Do, do you want to? Could we give the microphone to Chad and Hadley first just to say a, say a word? Hadley's uh, right here.
3: I went back to, those <clears throat> to that chapter to see what I'd said. <laughs> and, I, and I was touched by, I was being interviewed by a former student of mine. Uh, case in, former case in Crosby, not a case in Chile. Yes, she was, was, she was she,
1: your, your student at Princeton.
3: Yeah, but she was in my course on political obligations, the course from which a book called First Things had sprung. And she said it was that course at that time, at the time she was considering the church, that firmed her up in her conviction. And it reminded me of something that came up in our discussions that the letters I had from students over the, before I was a Catholic. Uh, Really teaching natural law and objective truths. I get letters from different parts of the world from my former students saying, you know, it was that work of natural law that brought me back into the church. And so with one case, Sam Rudman, <coughs> uh, you mentioned this case of he, uh, he preceded me to, into the church, A former student of mine, preceded me into the church. But the line that, I'll just pick up the line that, um, that RJ was citing. It came into conversation with Stuart Svetland who said he'd been converted at Oxford because of conversations with Robbie and with um, Dermot Quinn. And I said, Robbie doesn't know what got to you. He said you were resisting him all the time. (laughs) And he said it was Dermot. Dermot said, you could believe everything the church tells you and not be a good Catholic. The question is, do you believe in the church as a truth-telling institution? Oh, that really caught me. I really did, because I thought, when the church stands contramundum against the currents at work in the culture, my betting is that the church has it right. And our dear friend, the late Jim Burchell, the provost at Notre Dame said, the church will hold up this mirror to you and say, this is what you're going to look like if you proceed on this path. No surprises. We've seen it all before. No surprises. It was a truth-telling institution. Yeah.
1: I should also mention, uh, in Hadley's case, gosh, dozens of people, his former students, his readers, uh, perhaps scores of people, uh, came into the Catholic Church ahead of Hadley under his influence, uh, which is exactly what happened in the case of G.K. Chesterton, who took a very long time to come into the church and made many converts to the faith before he, he did actually uh, uh, come in come into the church chad where I'm are you
4: I'm, I'm back hiding back here um, <laughs> uh, I, i'm it's interesting for me to hear you tell the stories of other converts because for a long time i hid as a convert and people didn't even know i was a convert so it's uh, it's funny to think of oneself as a convert just what you were saying in terms of it being a fulfillment of the journey that you were on part of the story that Matt Frank tells for me, because I'm one of the odd ones where Matt Frank actually tells my story for me, which is very nice, a uh, nice two-hour lunch uh, in New York, uh, telling my story to him, and then him telling it better than I could. But uh, one of the things that I do tell in the story is how I grew up in a in a half-Catholic, half-Protestant family in which I heard the story told over and over again that we used to be Catholic. Yeah. yeah. And so I grew up being very resistant to the Catholic faith because the family narrative is that we were Catholic and now we're free from all that. In fact, the family pictures were... All the black and white photos were Catholic photos <laughs> and all the color photos were the were free from the Catholic faith. So it, it was um, it was a very strong narrative in the family. And so I was one of those people who... When I talked to Catholics, I was going to put up a fight every time. And so the, the, I was very grateful for, in retrospect, someone who was strong in their faith who did put up the fight. Because what I learned over time was my story, my family's story, was the story of the West. At least since the 16th century, in which the Reformation began telling the story of, we used to be Catholic, We used to be Catholic, and now we're not Catholic. And so I think of my own family experience as a kind of microcosm of the history of the West in which the Catholic Church is going to continue to woo Christians back who have continually bought the lie that we were Catholic and we are no longer Catholic. But I think it was Balthazar who said a Protestant's just a Catholic who's jumped out of his own skin. And I think that's true.
1: (laughs) Chad, of course, is a wonderful uh, scholar of St. Augustine, and uh, St. Augustine, probably the most famous, next to St. Paul, would you say, the most famous convert in in history, is also a great maker of converts, and to this day continues to be a maker of converts. Uh, one of my students uh, in a seminar that Cornell West and I were teaching together at Princeton came into the church under the influence of Augustine, whom she began reading in our, in our class. I'm speaking of Julia Wilson. And... Uh, when she was received she did me the honor of inviting me to be her sponsor uh, and she was received at an Easter vigil mass in Trenton at the cathedral in Trenton and uh, uh, as I say Cornell West co-taught seminar and, and he uh, she invited Cornell to come along and and he did and we had a wonderful evening uh, 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 together when, when she uh, when she went up to be individually received by the bishop who sat on the throne mm-hmm. with the Crozier, uh, Cornell whispered into my ear the question, well, can I, can I come up too? And <laughs> I said, sure. <laughs> and so, uh, so the two of us had hands on her respective shoulders. The bishop gave us a big smile and <laughs> received Julia into the church. But uh, at the end of this three-and-a-half-hour extravaganza before the, the youngsters, because Julia had a big crowd of her friends there, made us go off and, and, and have a one-in-the-morning breakfast at PJ's Pancake House in Princeton. Uh, on our way out, uh, Cornell turned to me and he said, you know, Robbie, I'm a Baptist. And we Baptists, we're really
2: just a little rowboat.
1: This Catholic church, it's an
2: ocean liner. <laughs> yeah, when I, when I did the uh, rite of continuing conversion at uh, the <clears throat> Cathedral Basilica of St. Peter's and Paul um, with Archbishop Chaput, which was a, a great treat for me, I thought, well, there's going to be 100 people there show up and the place is packed and thousands of people yeah the ark is large yeah
1: now i think that the data show that more catholics convert to evangelicalism by far than catholics than evangelicals convert to uh catholicism which is something i think the church needs to be asking all of us need to be asking ourselves some questions about
0: I have a a question for the two of you from a viewer at home. Um, Can you share any stories of pilgrimages you made during your own conversion or of others who were deeply influenced by spending time at holy sites such as Rome, Jerusalem, Fatima, Lourdes, and Poland, etc.?
2: Well, in the book, Kirsten Powers has an experience in the catacombs um, at St. Peter's. So that's a powerful story in the book. Uh, Somebody made a pilgrimage on my behalf. Uh, so when I, one summer when I was at Boston College, I was, I was working in a section of the library, and one of my co-workers was a, a nun from Mother Teresa's order. And as she tells the story, she and Mother Teresa had had a falling out, and she had been sent back to the United States. Um, and I'll tell one brief story about her and then tell her tell, to set up. Um, she came to work one day, and she says, Mother Teresa died last night. And I said, yes, I know. I, I read in the newspaper this morning. What a What a tragedy. And she said, well, I knew before I read the newspaper because when I woke up this morning, Mother Teresa was standing at the foot of my bed, gosh, apologizing to me because I was right and she was wrong. <laughs> I said, well, that's very interesting. And she said, well, all my prayers are my prayers are always answered. So that's how she set this up. Maybe three weeks later, she comes in on a Monday morning. She says, uh I made pilgrimage for you down to St. Patrick's uh, Cathedral in New York. I went to the, the side altar of Elizabeth Ann Seton and, and prayed for your conversion. And remember, my prayers are always answered. <laughs> uh, so when we entered the church, we, uh, we went to St. Pat's to, to visit the side altar of Elizabeth Ann Seton. Good evening. Thanks for doing the uh, the book. It's a it's a great addition to the literature. And I actually collect Catholic convert literature. I've got about four thousand volumes. And um, are you
1: yourself a convert? or you? No, I'm not. actually oh, like me? You've got convert envy. I, I do. I, I resonated with that with that <laughs> comment
2: especially. Um, and, I, and I can attest. I've never seen another book that was interviews. There are a few dialogues and things, but so this is a, a unique addition to the canon. Um, But I recall a a, a German bishop uh, called Ratzinger once said that that converts are important because they show what the church is doing right. Do you have any any comments on that?
1: Well, the sense I have is that converts are great refreshers of the faith. Look at Newman, for example. Gosh, he, he made an enormous contribution to the understanding and to the life of the of, of the church I mean in, in several different areas by the way you know the development of doctrine uh, in the in the area of epistemology the essay and aid of a grammar of uh, ascent, of course his own uh, conversion story in defense of his of himself the Apologia apologia proviua uh, uh, that is the kind of freshness of thinking that any institution any I mean, even even Non-religious institutions always need, and converts very often are the ones that bring that to the church. There's this wonderful um, saying, in, you know, that that Catholics have about, and it's said often in connection to the Second Vatican Council. It must be in the document somewhere that the that the the Church retrieves from the treasury things that are both old and new.
2: Nova et veteran
1: Yeah, uh, and I think. There again, converts play such an important role. They really refresh our thinking. Um, there, there is a tendency which Catholics, though, need to avoid, and I really need to mention it this evening. And that is lionizing converts. We um, we're not so guilty of that in the United States, in my experience. But I lived for five of my years five years in uh, in England, and of course, there English Catholics are historically have been a terribly persecuted uh, minority so uh, when they win a big convert especially if they win a big convert from the Anglicans, uh, they like to rub it in and make a big deal uh, out of it. They did it with Chesterton uh, and that, that, that came off uh, uh, okay. They certainly did it with Newman uh, but you got to be careful uh, they did it with Eric Gill right. Eric Gill he was a very distinguished uh, artist, uh, sculptor uh, but he turned out to be a very bad guy, and uh, some years after his death when his diaries were revealed and it became clear what he was up to long after, even after his conversion to Catholicism, the uh, the English Catholics had a lot of egg on their face and the Anglicans I'm sure were glad that he had, uh, he had left their fold and joined the, uh, the, the Catholic Church. So uh, yeah, we should celebrate. <coughs> Converts, after all, we believe they are coming into the fullness of, of faith. We recognize other Christians as Christians. We we recognize the good that is in uh, all the other great faiths. You know, we believe the teaching of Nostra Aetate of the Second Vatican Council and all that. But we think that there's something very important to celebrate coming into the fullness of truth in the in the Catholic Church. So celebrating is okay, but but lionizing is probably not the uh, not the thing to do. And and we try to be careful in the book you know, not to be, not to be doing that.
0: We have time for one, possibly oh, no. two questions. Oh, tell me goodbye.
3: Thank you. Uh, gentlemen, thanks for doing this tonight. Um, one of the topics we haven't directly touched is what divides the Christian faith, and that's the Protestant Reformation. Could you give some reflections on how these converts have sort of reconciled, if they've been a Protestant, how they cross that bridge?
1: RJ's been there, so he's got more to say on this. So I'll just say very quickly, one of the things I have noticed, and that we get a laugh out of that comment of Bob Work's that I uh, I quoted because this is in the background, is that a lot of people, as a result of the Reformation and division, and and there were obviously, I mean, I think we all need to confess, there were a lot of there's a lot of wrong on both sides, a lot of human error and arrogance and sinfulness, and there are a lot of problems in the That created this terrible rift in Christianity. But a lot of what many Protestants believe about the Catholic Church just isn't true. So a lot of it is just straightening out stuff that people think they know but don't know. And they've been reinforced in this, in good faith, just because of ignorance in the communion at the end. I'm sure we Catholics have a good deal of ignorance of what some of our Protestant uh, friends uh, think as well but I mean the classic and easy cases but they're more complicated and interesting ones the classic ones are the Marian teachings so you know how many Protestants have you met who think we worship Mary and, and you know it's pretty easy to fix and you know no we 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 don't worship her we don't think she's she's God and, and so you know we yeah you want you yeah, if you ask RJ who's alive to pray for you it's okay to ask someone who's dead to pray for you and, and Mary's one, well, you know.
2: Especially when she doesn't have original sin. How hard is that? (laughs) Yeah, that's right.
1: Uh, So a, a lot of the problem is overcoming those just misunderstandings. At a deeper level, it's something like how are we justified? How are we sanctified? How are we redeemed? You know, once the the theologians themselves and the representatives of the, of the Protestant churches, at least the Lutheran church and Catholic church, get together and, and actually try to sort this thing out you realize there's not a lot of, of, of difference there's a lot of misunderstanding, there's not a lot of difference. The joint statement released by the Lutherans and the Catholics Chad might know this better, George Do you know it? Is this about 2003?
2: Uh, you're around so, there probably some, yeah.
1: some, some, Something like that You know, makes clear that um, that uh, you know the 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 real fear that the Protestants, Lutheran-type Protestants, have of of the the Catholic faith is uh, Catholic teaching is something that just not consistent with with Catholic teaching. But it's out there; it's deeply ingrained. Most Protestants believe it, and most Catholics and most Protestants are not theologians. Most Catholics themselves don't know what they believe about stuff like that. Just they're they're happy to believe whatever the church. Holds about this. That's what, that's what I believe, and and I'm not going to fault people for for that. I mean, you know, we're not all supposed to be uh, theologians. The better we know our faith, the deeper we understand our faith, the better. All things considered, of course, uh, but you can't expect people or demand that people uh, uh, be theologians. But it's something that that we're constantly running up against. And many conversion stories are real, and including some in this book, are stories of how I came to understand what I had been mistaken about previously because of my upbringing in evangelical Protestantism, for example, about Catholic teaching or about the Catholic Church. Now, where I grew up in West Virginia, there were really weird things that, I I mean, dear lady, she was like a second mother to me, mother of my best friend when I was growing up, widow of a Baptist preacher. And, you know, she would occasionally take me aside because she loved me. It, it wasn't be hurtful at all because she loved me. She would take me aside and tell me things about the Catholic Church that I really should know because I'm old enough now and I'm going to have to make a decision and she wants me to make a decision for Christ. She used to take me and my friend Dave uh, to, uh, Billy Graham never came to our little town of West Virginia, but um, uh, the Billy Graham crusades would come to the movie theaters and so she'd take us. My parents were very uh, open about that, uh, very accepting of that. She'd let they 'd let this lady take, a, take me and, and, and her son with her son to the Billy Graham Crusades, but anyway, she would take me aside and say things like, "Well, you have to understand, you know why priests don't marry don't get married it 's because they sleep with the bride the night before the what
3: <laughs>
1: Now that's not Luther. I mean Luther had a lot of nasty things, you know, in his worst moments he' had a lot of that I mean, he didn't say stuff like, like that, but again, I mean there's just stuff that people <laughs> believe. I didn't know that. Yeah, and, and this is a nice, good, this is not a bigot, this is not a mean person. You know, this is, this is somebody who wanted nothing but good. R.J.?
2: There's a lot of clarification. I remember learning that what Protestants meant by justification is what Catholics described as sanctification, and what, Catholics, uh, what Protestants described as sanctification some Catholics called justification, which would cause some problems. Yeah. So there's clarifications to be had. Uh, worship is not veneration, those kind of clarifications, but uh, the the comment that I told my father, uh, who was very gracious to me but not entirely at ease uh, with, with my and my wife and his grandchildren going to Rome as I told him, I'm doing exactly what you taught me to do you taught me to follow the truth as I saw it you taught me to follow scripture as I understood it Uh, And you taught me to always follow Jesus wherever he could be found. And I think that's the the great virtue of the magisterial reformers and the great virtue of of serious evangelicals is they are committed to following Jesus where they think he is. They're committed to following the truth as they understand it. And they're committed to following the the truth and fullness of scripture as as they understand it. Uh, And, those virtues, uh, I think all things being equal, tend to lead you to the fullness of the faith, uh, to read more deeply in the church fathers, to understand in context and so on. Uh, so we, we have a wound in, in our faith. Uh, there's, there's the great east-west wound, and then there's the second wound as well between the, uh, the Protestants and Catholics. I myself have a, have a great deal of hope that uh, all things shall be well.
1: Yeah, and I think we need to pray and work for that um, reunion, both east and west, and then within the uh, within the west. I see rosemary's going up. There. I'll tell one last story, Michael. So uh, I love the Missouri Synod Lutherans. They are fantastic. If you are going to be at the pro life march in a few weeks, you're going to see a big delegation of those people, and they'll stand up for marriage and they fight. They they've got some serious problems with uh, Catholicism, but on the other hand, they uh, uh, are not. Uh, 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 not, not reluctant to talk with us. In fact, I was invited out a few years ago to speak at a big conference of Missouri Synod Lutheran pastors, and they asked me to give three lectures to their, to their pastors, and never have I been more warmly received than uh, among these um, uh, Protestant pastors. So they had me do a lecture and then a break and then another lecture and then a break and then another lecture and then a break and then finally we came back for Q&A. And I think one of my lectures was on life and one was on marriage and one was on religious freedom. And when, the, when we got back, finally got to the question session, the very first question, <laughs> pastor raises his hand, I recognize him, he stood up and he said, oh, Professor George, those were such wonderful lectures and you've given me such ammunition, such good stuff and arguments, especially on marriage, he said... Uh, that I'm going to use in my in my preaching and in my ministry. I just think it's wonderful, and I want to thank you. But I just have one question, which is how do we square um, what you have said and your, your arguments and your moral arguments with the fact that people don't have free will? <laughs> and I said, well, Pastor, I think you're going to have to rethink that
0: one. <laughs>
1: Thank you, Rosemary.
0: <laughs> thank you so much, uh, Professor George and RJ. That was a that was a very hopeful and insightful and moving talk. And thank you to our audience here in person and at home for coming tonight and, and tuning in. You know, we have these events for you guys for you to grow in your faith and your intellect and, and to combine those two. Be sure to pick up your copy of Mind, Heart, and Soul, Intellectuals in the Path to Rome right outside the chapel. The CIC book group will be starting its first book of 2019 this month. The title is The God That Did Not Fail, How Religion Built and Sustains the West by Robert Royal. We're going to launch the the CIC book group with a luncheon featuring Robert Royal on January January 24th at 1 p.m. Registration is required for lunch. Our next evening event features Megan Cox Gordon on January 28th at 6 p.m. Ms. Gordon will discuss her new book, The Enchanted Hour, The Miraculous Power of Reading Aloud in the Age of Distraction. I invite you to visit our website, join our listserv, follow us on social media to stay up to date on these upcoming events and all the other upcoming events that we have going on. Thank you again so much for coming, and I hope to see you at our future events. Thank you.